I went through about three names before I decided on the really most obscure one. <laughs> um, well done. At one point, I thought about calling it the All Terrain Armored Podcast. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and the the wife vetoed that one strangely because she said it was too utilitarian and not sexy enough. Death, dead furry creatures is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and the other one, I actually, I really liked the idea. I was going to do the Blockade Runner podcast. Ooh. But something happened when I was designing the art for the thumbnail. You know the phenomenon where your your brain will, you will read part of the first part of a word and you will just make up whatever the word says regardless of how it's spelled or you'll like misread a word sometimes? Mm-hmm. Well, when I typed in Blockade Runner, every time I read it or tried to say it out loud, I would say Blade Runner. That's unfortunate. Ah, yeah. And if I was being confused by the title of my own podcast, that seemed like uh, uh, a very avoidable pitfall. They both have Harrison Ford, so it wouldn't be too bad, but... They do. That's true. Now, I also want to say Dead Both and Spies. I mean, so pretty much you've named your podcast after intentional misinformation? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. And I, okay. I feel like I copped to that because this isn't a news gathering website. It's not even a place to get useful information at all. This is a place for my opinions, which change weekly. So, so, so what I just heard, Rob, was we're not useful. I, well, I would argue that the show is not useful because, as I said in a review that I wrote on iTunes, the second episode of the show, the one you did on the prequels, made me rethink why I hate the prequels so much <laughs> in a completely different manner, and I really do appreciate that. So you mean you found a new way to hate them or made you not hate yes. them? Yes, yeah. No, I found a whole other reason why they're terrible. And I was like, I never considered that after 15 years of hating these movies. This is a completely new angle that these guys have brought, and that's really quite impressive. After all the Star Wars podcasts I listened to, I was like, wow, only two episodes in, and this show has already given me more than the 100 of my own show has. Welcome back to Dead Boffin Spies, the only Star Wars podcast whose title references a dead fur-covered alien species. You know what? Actually, don't don't check that. There's probably a show about killing Ewoks or something out there. Anyway, I am super excited about this episode because it combines two of my favorite things, Star Wars and the sound of my voice. No, I mean Star Wars and comics. This week, I'll be looking at the premiere issue of Star Wars, the brand new series published by Marvel Comics. But even more exciting than the comic are my special guests. This episode, I'm joined by Rob Kelly of AquamanShrine.net and the irredeemable shag of FirestormFan.com. Rob and Shag are the co-hosts of the Fire and Water podcast. 
a show that has done more than anything to inspire dead boffin spies and drive a wedge between me and my family. Rob, Shag, how are you guys doing? Very good, sir. Happy to be here. Kind of. Really, it feels more, really more like an obligation. I mean, you've been writing into our show for so many years, and then you started writing Rob those personal handwritten letters on napkins asking us to be on your show. I don't know if that was red ink or blood, but it was freaking me out a little. It was so, a little of both. So, I mean, we're here. You got, you got us. I, I applaud your, you know, uh, adventurous spirit by starting a podcast on such an obscure topic that I'm not sure you're going to get many listeners on. So good, good on you, sir. Very brave. Yeah, I typed in Star Wars podcasts on iTunes, and this is the only show that came up. Your friend is quite a mercenary. The fellows took a lot of shots at me for stealing their podcast idea and trying to poach their audience, too. So I had to edit out big segments of our conversation that was just me crying. I also spliced this conversation together from two different recording sources. This because I can't run the Skype recorder app from my iPad, but for reasons unclear to me, I also can't get Skype to send or receive calls on my computer. Shag, however, was kind enough to record our Skype session with his computer while I used my handheld digital recorder from my end. The result was that I sounded the clearest on my recording and Rob and Shag sounded the best on theirs, which should tell you a lot about all of our priorities. So I have done my best to cut our talk together using the best recording from each source and trying to balance out the volume. It's not perfect, but I think it's pretty good. I don't want to spend too much more time on the preamble, because I want to get into talking about this comic, but the topic does warrant some contextual background. Marvel first published Star Wars back in 1977, when the movie came out. Issue 1 had a cover date of July 1977, but the book actually hit newsstands on April 12th of that year thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Marvel Comics for that release date. They continued to publish monthly adventures of Luke Skywalker and the other heroes of the Rebellion, including adaptations of all three classic films, as well as brand new stories set between the movies and after Return of the Jedi, all the way up to the series' cancellation in 1986. In the 90s, Dark Horse Comics acquired the license to publish Star Wars, and they held that license for nearly two decades. But when Disney bought the rights to Star Wars from Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox, everyone knew it was only a matter of time before the comic book publication rights returned to Marvel, because Disney owns Marvel as well. The time, it turns out, was January 14th of 2015. That's when this issue, Star Wars number 1, hit the shelves. Star Wars Issue 1 is written by Jason Aaron, with art by John Cassidy, colors by Laura Martin, and inks by Chris Eliopoulos. It was edited by Jordan White and featured 327 variant covers. Not really, but it featured a whole lot of variant covers. This issue begins with a beautifully, deliciously cinematic introduction that takes up the first four pages of the book. Page 1 is all black with the blue prefatory text, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then, boom, we get a double-page spread of the classic Star Wars logo over the Starscape background, and page four gives us an opening crawl in the classic yellow font style. Instead of the episode number, this issue is appropriately called Book One, Skywalker Strikes. The opening crawl goes, It is a period of renewed hope for the Rebellion. 
The evil Galactic Empire's greatest weapon, the Death Star, has been destroyed by the young rebel pilot, Luke Skywalker. With the Imperial forces in disarray, the rebels look to press their advantage by unleashing a daring offensive throughout the far reaches of space, hoping to defeat the Empire once and for all, and at last restore freedom to the galaxy. It's a good thing this comic has 30 story pages, because that was the first four pages getting the title and the opening crawl. The cinematic style opening continues with a shot of space and then a starship coming into view from overhead in the classic style of the first film. For those familiar with the movies, the ship looks a lot like Jabba's sail barge. The ship arrives at Simon 1 in the Corellian Industrial Complex, the largest manufacturer of weapons for the Galactic Empire. Waiting for the ship to land is a man in standard Imperial officer uniform. He identifies himself as Overseer Agadine, and he's surrounded by a squad of stormtroopers and an LOM series protocol droid. The ship opens, revealing Han Solo, R2-D2, and a pair of guards dressed in the same Skiffguard uniform that Lando Calrissian wore in Return of the Jedi. Han says he is there as a representative of Jabba the Hutt, and he's there at Simon to negotiate an arms deal between the Empire and the Hutts. Han and the Skiffguards are forced to surrender their weapons before they can enter the munitions factory, and as they do, we pull back to see that Chewbacca is watching Han from a sniper's perch above the landing platform. Inside the factory, Overseer Agadine mentions the Empire's negotiator will soon arrive and set the terms for the deal with the huts. Then Han gives R2 a signal, and the droid dumps fluid onto the floor at the feet of the stormtroopers. Then R2's arc welder zaps the fluid, which has spilled under the troops' boots, and half the squad is electrocuted. Han and the skiff guards, who turn out to be Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, take out the other stormtroopers, and they force Agadine to direct them to the factory's main power core. After the officer shows them the way, Leia punches him right in the face. Luke and Leia shed their disguises, and Luke wears the yellow jacket outfit from the awards ceremony at the end of Star Wars. Leia wears a white outfit that's a bit more functional and tactical than her classic look, but it still has the white skirt over white pants. When the three heroes and R2 reach the power core, Han contacts C-3PO, who is alone in the Millennium Falcon, which is parked in a junkyard on the outskirts of the industrial center. They tell him to get ready to push the autopilot when they give the word. Meanwhile, Luke follows the will of the Force and wanders off from the main group. He goes downstairs where he finds a group of imprisoned slave laborers. The slaves comprise a number of alien species, including Bith, Ithorian, Jawa, Moncalamari, Tagruta, Twi'lek, Zabrak, and possibly others in the background. Luke is confronted by the Slave Master, who brandishes an energy whip and warns Luke not to reach for his gun. And that's the setup for Luke igniting his lightsaber and dismembering the Slave Master. He frees the slaves from their cage, and we get a heroic splash page of Luke with lightsaber at his side, standing over the wounded Slave Master, and telling the slaves to follow. Upstairs, Han and Leia have a conversation that should foreshadow their eventual romance, and Luke returns with a dozen or two slaves. Chewbacca radios in a warning that the Imperial ship is landing outside of the factory, and here we meet the negotiator that Agadine mentioned before. It's none other than Darth Vader, who gets his own full-page splash as he walks between rows of stormtroopers. Han tries to keep a cool head, advising Chewie to stay hidden, but Leia angrily belays that order and commands Chewbacca to shoot Darth Vader. Chewie gives it a try. <laughs> I almost said gives it a shot. But oh, those pesky Jedi with their precognitive powers. Vader senses the danger a split second early and blocks Chewie's first attempt with his lightsaber. With Vader's lightsaber, not Chewie's. Chewie pours on the rifle fire from his sniper's nest, and Darth Vader lifts up his own stormtroopers to use them as human shields. 
Vader uses the Force to bring Chewie's tower down, forcing the big furry oaf to leap away as it collapses around him. Vader then orders the few remaining stormtroopers that he didn't sacrifice to go find the Wookiee. Han tells 3PO to turn on the Falcon's autopilot so he can come pick them up, but a number of bizarre alien scavengers have started picking essential equipment off of the Falcon, prohibiting it from taking off. In the factory, the rebels shoot out with the stormtroopers and make their way to a hangar full of all-terrain armored transports. Han says they can use an AT-AT to escape, but Leia notices that Luke, for the second time, has wandered off on his own. Luke abandons the others to actively seek out Darth Vader, the man responsible for the death of his father and his master, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But the ghostly voice of old Ben warns Luke to run as we get our final splash page of the issue. Luke and Vader at opposite ends of the corridor, lightsabers ignited and ready for battle. And just as a final treat, the creator credits are listed in the same design style as the end credits of the film. In what has become standard procedure for Disney, we get some post-credits material in the form of sneak previews of Marvel's two other Star Wars series. The Darth Vader ongoing series by Kieran Gillen and Salvador LaRocca coming this February, and the Princess Leia miniseries by Mark Wade and Terry Dodson, which starts in March. These are both unlettered previews, so they're really not much more than fully colored art samples, but they do look terrific. And that was Star Wars Issue 1, Skywalker Strikes. Rob, what did you think about this issue? Well, I mean, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, I will say that it was this was the first comic book series in boy, I, don't, I, I guess since Aquaman number one that I like really could not wait to get my hands on. And I've been buying, as I mentioned on Fire, the Fire and Water podcast, I've been buying everything digitally lately. But I bought this in print. I was so excited for this. I was like, I want to I want to have this in my hand. And I went to the local comic store that's down the street from my office on my lunch hour. I was just so jazzed, you know, because it was just so much fun to have Star Wars sort of back at Marvel. Um, I, I liked it quite a bit. I really did. It, it's it's a bit of a greatest hits in that it's like we've got hands getting cut off and you've got them kind of, a, you know, an appearance by Ben. And you've got sort of these creatures attacking the Millennium Falcon and all. I mean, it has like every little bit. But I think that was meant to be in a sort of celebratory like, hey, Star Wars is back as their tagline is, you know, welcome home. Uh, it is a kind of like, you know, homecoming of this, you know, this 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 franchise is now back where it started. So I I, I took it as as not so much that every issue is going to be like this, where it's just this sort of, you know, every every Star Wars character. Oh, we're going to mention the huts. So we're going to everybody else. But it just kind of was like a big celebration to have to have everybody in there. Um, but I, I did really enjoy it quite a bit. Everyone seems like the characters that I remember. Uh, and uh, the whole bit with Chewbacca as the sniper, I thought was a fun, unique thing that we had not seen in any of the movies to this point. So uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I almost got annoyed at how many at how many things in the how many little elements of the issue felt like fan service or just callbacks to remind the casual fans but I also understand exactly why they were doing that. Um, it was to remind people because this I don't think this comic was meant for people who've been reading Marvel comics or comics in general for the last 20 years. I think this comic was had was written with an audio, a much broader audience in mind, which is people who like Star Wars but aren't regular comics fans. And I think the sales show that because this is like the first comic since 1999 to sell over a million copies in pre-orders. Well, I would say it's not even just people who haven't read comics. I would say it's people who aren't incredibly deeply steeped in Star Wars. 
I mean, we sit here and go, oh, look, they're in disguises because, you know, the guys wore disguises in A New Hope and Return of the Jedi. We get that. But for someone else who just comes to this casually, that's going to be a subconscious thing. They're not even going to put that together. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to put that together there. They're not going to put together that the the slave master looks like the Rancor Keeper. You know, they're not going to see all those little things there. They're just going to read a fun adventure comic and put it down and go, wow, that felt like Star Wars. Okay, Chet, continue. Um, What were your overall thoughts about it? I wanted to not like this comic. I, I I didn't want to get it. I had no plans on getting it. I thought, you know what, I've got 107 issues of Star Wars Marvel plus three annuals in my long boxes already. I don't need one more. And, I, you know, what? I picked it up based honestly for this podcast. I said, you know what, I'll get it because that little mealy mouth Ryan guy wanted me to. <laughs> and so picked it up, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. I don't Good. know. Good, then I don't owe you $5. <laughs> Damn. But uh, like you, Rob, I bought it in hard copy. And I got to tell you. I, I it was worth the extra dollar over a three ninety nine book for those first opening four pages. Like when you open and you see Star Wars, that giant logo, I don't know that it would have the same effect in digital. In a paper copy, that was just whoa. I mean like it, it kinda caught my breath. That was super fun. That was super yeah. fun. I have only read it digitally. I want to go out and find the, the hard copy, but I just I didn't get a chance to go out and get it because we've had crappy weather here lately. And my my local comic book store is not so local. Um, there are two of them, but they're roughly an hour away. Oh, yeah. gotcha. So I, but I can say as just viewing it on digital, the effect is still pretty impressive. And I can imagine what it is like in an actual hard copy. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's great. I mean, I saw that and I was like, okay, five bucks. I didn't mind. Yeah. I'm right only then. A lot of the panels are done in a horizontal format to sort of replicate the widescreen movie format. So it's sort of – Especially the beginning. I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, it's sort of built to look like you would watch a Star Wars movie on your TV TV screen or on the big screen. It's it's sort of – I think – I'm pretty sure that was on purpose by the the art guy, the art team. Now, now if if we're going to start nitpicking a bit, um, there's a couple things that just sat – that made me ponder. You know, they do this very daring offensive. And mm-hmm. if you look back at the history of, of Star Wars comics and Star Wars fiction and, and anything expanded universe, most of the time in this period of history, meaning after A New Hope and before Empire, the rebels are on the run. They are they're, – they're at the almost the low – even though they've taken this great victory, they're not some big organization that's, you know, on the move. They're – playing more of a defensive action most of the time and so the fact that they've got this huge daring attack on a major facility and han solo is completely in on the rebellion just is kind of like huh that felt a little different i didn't i didn't hate it but it was enough to catch my attention that actually was the first thing that i noticed that kind of made me again sort of that same response that kind of huh because for the most part what we've seen of han solo in this era is the kind of reluctant tag along like he's kind of he kind of feels sympathy for this group he kind of feels indebted part of it is he's attracted to leia but he he feels kind of like he owes them a moral obligation to join them but he's really never been the full convert to the rebel cause it, it has seemed in this era and this one really seems like he is i mean he's leading this mission which makes sense because he's probably the most qualified of these people but they really feel like they know each other much better than they should at this point. But I, I don't know. It kind of depends on like how, how quickly after the Battle of Yavin this story has taken place. That's one of the questions I wanted to bring up. Anyone got any thoughts? 
No, yeah. I mean, in terms of Han being part of the team, I mean, I there's that line in Empire Strikes Back where he says, you know, I got to go that, that ever since he ran into that bounty hunter or Mantel, yeah. I realized I, I always took the sense that in between the two movies, he was fully immer- immersed with the group now. And it was only when they have that encounter that it sort of shook him back into his old life. And he decided, all right. You know, so it didn't it didn't really bother me tremendously that he was sort of in for a penny and for a pound at this point. OK. So I, I've been wondering when this story took place, you know, because does it take place right after A New Hope? It feels like it's much later. I mean, if you listen to 3PO, it almost sounds like they've done a number of daring adventures based on 3PO's dialogue. That was my impression, too. Like, they, they've done this a couple of times. Which makes you wonder, are they trying to not contradict Marvel's previous run of Star Wars comics? Maybe not actively trying to incorporate the mythology of it, but maybe they're actively trying to not you know, uh, go against it. You know, it's fun when I was a kid and I read the original series, which was one of my favorite comics, even though I knew that they were working to, to keep it in continuity with the movies. It, I, even as a, even as a kid, I always sort of kept them separate because the constant meetings with Darth Vader on the, in the Marvel series to me, waters down the movies. If, if Luke and Leia and Han of all these people have run into Vader all these times, it makes their confrontation in Empire Strikes Back to me a little less special. So to me, I'm, I've always just been like, you know what? The movies are one continuity and the comics are another continuity, even though they're trying to stitch them together. Mm-hmm. I, I just always sort of kept them separate because I was like, like even in this issue, I'm like, you know, I don't know if I like the idea of Luke and Darth meeting here. I mm-hmm. like the idea that they meet for the first time in Bespin. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, but it it doesn't bother me reading the comic because I'm just like, you know what? These are Star Wars comics, and it's just kind of a separate alt-Star Wars universe, and I have no problem with that. Yeah, when they they revealed Darth Vader in this issue, I kind of sank a little bit. Again, it was the thing where I understood, of course, you need Darth Vader in in the first issue. He has to be the villain, but... I really want them to start introducing new blood. I, I want them to have a new sort of recurring big bad that they can use for the breath of this and keep Darth Vader off screen. He's going to get his own comic. So keep him out of this book. <laughs> keep him out of this book and let like let me hold on to the mystique that, that Luke and, and Vader had their first real fight in Cloud City. Can I just say for a moment, I do not envy the artists on the Darth Vader series having a main character whose face is completely immobile. <laughs> I have to say, the art in the preview, though, for the Vader is really, really impressive. I mean, like, Java is picture perfect. Oh, they both look great. I'm going to get both series. It's just like, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like having to draw a series where your main guy can never express any emotions other than with his hands. But you know what? Salvador La Roca did Invincible Iron Man for like five years. So perfect guy, then. Yeah, so he he knows how to basically how to draw a character with a mechanical face that shouldn't move and yet still conveys emotion at times. Too bad Kurt Swan's not still around. <laughs> you know what's interesting is uh, the, one of the Dark Horse books. I mean, they really they didn't care. They let Darth Vader's mask emote. You could see when his eyebrows would come down essentially from his <laughs> mask, but it didn't look hokey. It was enough that he still looked like Vader, and you just assume that maybe his head was tilted in a certain way that it worked. <laughs> 
So, um, you know, you mentioned Vader and Luke facing off. That's an interesting thing because in the old Marvel series, at certain points in the run, Luke and Vader were prohibited from bumping into each other. I right. think it was specifically between Empire and Return. Like, Luke and Vader could not meet. Right. And um, so, you know, to have them meet right in issue one was kind of like, whoa, that's pretty bold. But at the same time, what this comic has over all the previous Star Wars number ones, if you will, is the whole gang's together. You get Luke, Leia, Han. Well, I guess Chewie's... But Chewie's really... He is there. Chewie. the, The whole gang's together. And Vader. No other first... Thing, and we'll talk about that in a minute, has ever done that. All of them have, like, piecemeal pieces of it. They're not all hanging out together. Hmm. So, it, you know, as long as Vader doesn't show up, as you said, every issue or every storyline, I'm okay with it. Perhaps you think you're being treated unfairly. How did you guys feel about John Cassidy's art? A lot of, um, a lot of photo reference. Yeah, I felt that, you know, he's probably contractually obligated to make them look like the actors at some point, and that can get difficult. There's very few artists that were good at able to, like Gray Morrow was really good at it, of, of making the people look like he did Star Trek for, for DC for many years. Um, but, yeah, there were some moments where I was like, you know what, I can live without the likenesses and maybe liven this up a little, not not have it be quite so stiff. But, again, I, you know, it's the first issue. They're they're what they're trying to do with the first issue is different than what they're going to do with the ninth issue. So yeah. I'm going to assume that Cassidy will loosen up a little and, and, you know, not be so worried about that. It looks exactly like Harrison Ford or Mark Hamill or whatever. So, but I mean, I thought it was fine. I, I, not, no, more than fine. I liked it quite a bit. Uh, actually the, the, I thought in terms of his pacing, I thought that was the best thing. The, the scene with Chewie trying to uh, sniper Darth Vader, I thought that was a really well-paced sequence. And then Darth Vader using the stormtroopers as kindling, I thought was also really <laughs> well done. So that in terms of the actual storytelling, I thought was was really good. You can clearly tell what Chewie's thinking. I mean, he did an exceptional job on that page where, where Leia's yelling at him, take the shot, you're right. And, and, you're just, and Chewie's got that look like, huh. Mm, maybe you know it's it's really you're absolutely right really 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 well done that was one of the pages i want to mention too for that reason yeah that, that actually that might have been my favorite moment of the comic because of leia's reaction because she's so emotional in that moment that her emotion is overriding logic and common sense han absolutely has the right idea he's like we can't fight darth vader we need to get out of here unseen and she can't get over because she's still raw from Vader holding her by the shoulders and forcing her to watch the destruction of her family and her home planet. And she's like, yes, Chewie, take the shot, kill him, put him down. Take the shot, kill my dad! (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Rob, you mentioned whether or not Cassidy's work will still look like this in issue 7 or issue 9. I would be amazed if he's still on the book. Um, (laughs) With his, when they announced that John Cassidy was going to be the art, I thought, Okay, issue one will come out on time. Issue two will come out one week late, later than it's solicited. Issue three will come out two months late. And issue four will have a brand new artist. Mm. Now, is, he, now, is he notorious for that? He is really notorious for being late oh, on deadlines. I did not now, they, okay. they had at least, I think they had more than a year. I think they've been working on this since late in 2013. Because that's Marvel knew that they were getting the rights way like i think in october of 2013 so oh, i bet they knew before that they, they possibly did but i think that's when the art that's when the editor got assigned to the book so i'm sure right, he got right. this team together right away um yeah but john cassidy he was he got really he was really big on joss whedon's run of astonishing x-men which took 
four years to tell two years worth of stories and then just recently when they were when marvel was doing their first marvel now initiative he was the artist on their flagship book uncanny avengers and it was delayed after the second issue and they had to cut the first story arc from six issues to four just so he could finish the first arc and then he was replaced by issue five so, Jeez. Yeah. I, I thought something similar when I heard he was on the book, but I didn't realize he had such delays. I just figured he was going to be off doing other projects by issue four. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure he's on for the first arc. I'm sure it will look good. With as much lead time as they've given him, I hope he can get three or four issues. Um, the first story arc doesn't have to be longer than that. They can have a three-issue story arc. And I, you know, I also have to say from the story angle, I, I kind of found myself a bit like Han Solo at the end. I was kind of like, I don't know how they're going to get out of this one. <laughs> Because I looked around, I'm like, the Falcon's shot. You know, I don't think 3PO's going to save the day with that one. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm like, this could be interesting. I wonder where it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. Based on your comments about Cassidy, I didn't know any really any of that stuff about him. One of the things they could do to him, first of all, I'm going to bet that if he can't keep up, that they've got a crap ton of fill-ins ready to show up because they know that they are trying to get a different audience for this comic. <laughs> and one sure way to piss that new audience off is to not have the books out on time. Because, you know, us comic fans, we're gluttons for punishment. We're willing to show up to the comic stores and be like, oh, the book's not in. Okay. But I think (laughs) I think regular people do not put up with that nonsense. You know, regular people and their regular entertainment, you know, people that like want to buy the new, you know, whatever, like Grand Theft Auto. And it's like, oh, that comes out on this day. They go to Target and it's not there. That never happens. You know, they, they make sure. So I'm betting that Marvel has at least a year of books ready to go like they're done um but one 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 way to keep up and i think would be kind of fun and i know that not every issue is going to be this long like 40 pages but i wouldn't mind seeing like a shorter star wars story and having like a backup of like tales of star wars like i would love to see like five pages of like dengar having an adventure (laughs) not a whole book of dengar but just like five pages or like you know five pages of you know another tale from the star wars from the most Eisley cantina I mean, this is such a huge world that you could do that kind of spin the dial around stories and, you know, give the regular artist a little bit of breathing room and still find time to to spend, you know, spend some time with some of these other characters. I love that idea in part because I I, I am nearing the end of my patience for Luke, Han, and Leia stories. I love the characters, but... I've read so much of them, and I was mentioning this to Shag when we talked a few nights ago. That you mean in the, you mean in the future? In, yes, as as listening. You are blowing my mind. Yes. <laughs> it's I, will, I will tell Shag about this again, as if I didn't tell him today. <laughs> Unlike other comic characters who exist in serial fiction for seventy years, but never truly age. Lucasfilm did create an actual timeline for the Star Wars characters. So they do evolve. So it is harder to... uh, I find it a little bit more difficult to give the suspension of disbelief that they can have what would amount to a life-threatening adventure with galactic consequences every seven hours, basically, (laughs) when you look at all of the comics and all of the books and all of the games and the, the adventures that they have. Because it's not like a Batman where... Okay, it's just it's in that little bubble of continuity. No, they have a life, and they're going to their seventies with events that should have killed them in their twenties. Um, so I, that, that's the thing that I'm really excited about for the new movies is I want to see a new generation. I I want to see 
comics that tie into the new movies when they come out. Some of the best Star Wars comics that I just bought on a whim not too long ago, it was Star Wars Legacy, which was set like 130 years after Return of the Jedi. So I haven't read the first volume yet, but they did a sequel volume called Star Wars Legacy Volume 2, which was set a few years after. They only ran 20 issues because that was when Dark Horse lost the license. Um, But that second volume stars a girl named Anya Solo, and it's a completely different political sphere, but it's recognizable. They, They have terms like Empire and Jedi and Sith, but they're used in ways that we're not quite familiar with. And she's a solo, but she's you don't really know where she comes from. And she's got an alien friend that's a Mon Calamari. She's got a droid friend that looks like IG-88 with a trench coat. And there are all these things that feel like Star Wars, but re-envisioned in a very new way. And that's what I'm hoping that the movies deliver. <sighs> Do you intend to read issue two? Oh, hells yeah. I mean, I'll be, I'm going to get the Vader book. I'm going to get Leia. I'm in for a penny and for a pound here. I mean, I, we talked about this on the Star Wars specific episode of Fire and Water, where, you know, I really did think that post prequels, my love of Star Wars was sort of just kind of not dead because I still love the original movies and I still hate the holiday special and I still love the toys. <laughs> Um, but just like I put this, I put my love of Star Wars in a past tense. I was like, I loved it up until this point and no more after that. And then the minute the announcement of the new movie, it just it just blew up again. And I was I was shocked at my own reaction. And so when Mar- when I found out that Marvel was getting the license back, I said, oh, man, I and not that the Dark Hearts books were bad. There was just something about them that I don't know. It just didn't click with me for some reason. Maybe I was reading the wrong ones. I don't know. I did. I did read their last series, the last like sort of classic Star Wars series they did by, by Brian Wood, which I enjoyed. Um, but but I am totally into it now. And I mean, if they don't keep up quality wise, I'll I'll probably eventually fade out on them. But for now, I am like I'll read every Star Wars book Marvel wants to put out. If they want to do you know the the Mon Mothma adventures, I'll read it. I'm I'm on board. <laughs> the secret life of Mon Mothma. Exactly right. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Shag, what about you? Are you going to continue? It's a tough question. Uh, It's a tough one because I've got something like 350 issues of Star Wars comics, Um, and I've read most of them, almost all. I I was trying to beat Rob to the punch on that joke. But um, (laughs) I didn't want to read this one, but I really enjoyed it, so I think the answer is yes. I will continue to get this comic for a while. It's it's on my watch list. If, if it stumbles, if it falls, if the story turns crap, I'm out. But I was so impressed with issue one, I'm going to get it. I probably will not get Darth Vader or Princess Leia unless someone tells me they're absolutely amazing. I, I'll get Princess Leia because it's a miniseries, so it's a it's a limited investment. Oh. And it's, ri- it's written by Mark Wade, who I heard Gail Simone describe it. He, Mark Wade doesn't know how to write a bad comic. <laughs> and I, I tend to agree with that, so I'll get that one. I will get the first issue of Darth Vader just to try it out. I really, I rarely ever enjoy books that star villains. Um, they, the, the creators really have to do something creative to get me to, to invest in a book that features a character, that spotlights a character that I know is essentially evil. Because a lot of times what they have to do is 
change the character enough to make him sympathetic or likable. And I don't want to feel sympathy for Darth Vader. At least not until the end of Return of the Jedi. Going into the story, another reason why I was hesitant to read it, because this is the fourth time they have launched Star Wars comic book continuity that, that takes place right after A New Hope. Um, and that's not even to count all the little individual stories that would show up in like Star Wars Tales or, or Star Wars Empire, Star Wars Rebellion, those series where they would just once in a while jump back to that period. Um, so the first one was it was in comic strip form. Uh, it was in something called Pizzazz Magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It was published by Marvel. It came out a cover, issue one was cover dated October 1977. And it featured the very first expanded universe Star Wars. It beat Splinter in the Mind's Eye to the Punch. This was this was the original thing. Mm. And it takes it starts off. It is in comic book form. It starts off shortly after the Battle of Yavin, and Luke and Leia are traveling to a secondary Rebel base. So they're leaving the Yavin Four and going to a second Rebel base to establish communication with that base. They feel like it's important to stay in contact to avoid any surprise attacks from the Empire. They drop out of hyperspace too early. Because apparently R2-D2's calculations were off. Apparently they did a slapdash job repairing him on Yavin 4 after uh, the attack on the Death Star, supposedly. And they get involved with the Imperials. They end up avoiding the Imperials and crash land on a jungle planet. And the rest of the story is this very long survival story on a jungle planet. There's no Han. There's no Chewie. Um, it's, I, I don't think there was any Vader, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, the first installment, each installment's only three pages. True. I was trying to follow the first story, though. Right, right. Which really, ultimately, was the whole run on Pizzazz, I think. Was just one big, long story, it seemed yes. like. Yes, yeah, it's done like a newspaper serial. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, very different launch. Um, again, you didn't have all the characters together. You didn't have a very classic sort of Star Wars tale, other than, you know, they, they had a misjump and had to fight some Imperials. So that one, you know, when you go back and reread it, it, it doesn't grab you. Now, I, if I wanted, I could insert an even another one, which would be when the comic strip started in the Los Angeles newspaper, but it, it could almost be considered a continuation of the Zazz work if you wanted, so I'm not really counting that as a, as a launching point. Okay. Um, the next one would be when Marvel Comics published Star Wars. The first six issues was retelling of A New Hope. Mm -hmm. So number seven was really the, the very first original story from them. So here's something interesting. The Pizzazz thing magazine I mentioned was cover dated October 1977. I can't find a release date on it, but we'll just assume it's probably around October 1977. So the Marvel comic, number seven, actually hit the shelves on October 11th, 1977, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Set your, oh. set your Wayback Machine and go check that out. Or better yet, set your Hot Tub Time Machine and there go you back go. and get yourself a, a brand spanking new copy of this comic. Thank you. Anyway, um, number that was, a nod, that was you who suggested that one, right? It was. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. So this one is, again, shortly after the Battle of Yavin. At most, it's only been a couple of days. And this story follows Han as he leaves Yavin 4 to pay off Jabba the Hutt. And he's, he's, he's sort of kind of interested in helping out the rebels, but really he's more worried about saving his own neck. He gets ended up hijacked by a bunch of pirates who steal his reward money, and then he has to lay low to avoid Jabba. He ends up getting tied up in some local issues on this backwater planet, which eventually leads to an amazing story with Jackson, but that's not for an issue or two. And uh, meanwhile, you get, a, you get a peek just barely of Luke and Leia who are starting to look for a new rebel base to replace Yavin 4. So all the major characters are there, uh, with the exception of Vader, and uh, but... They're not together. Han and Luke and Leia are not having an adventure together. It doesn't feel terribly Star Warsy at all, really. I mean, Han's dealing with pirates, and then he's on a very backwater planet with some weird aliens. So it doesn't, 
it's a fun adventure comic, but it doesn't feel very Star Warsy. And actually, it's kind of fun. If you put the pizzazz and this together, you could kind of say pizzazz was the adventures of Luke and Leia, and this was the adventure of Han, and they almost worked together. Because hmm. Howard Chaykin was involved in, I, I want to say, both projects, but okay. that's just me sort of uh, retconning something together that probably shouldn't. Then the other real, again, uh, the other, the final last launching point was the Dark Horse book, the recent one, as you mentioned by Brian Wood. Again, I don't want to, you know, ignore all the stuff that they've done from Dark Horse over the last 20 years that did play, take place right after the Battle for Yavin. There was lots of little one-off stories, but the Brian Wood series was really the only one that says, okay, this is continuity from that point going forward. The Brian Wood storyline took place two months after the Battle for Yavin. Uh, features Luke, Leia, and Wedge. They're searching for, again, a new rebel base to replace Yavin 4. The rebel, and, and these rebels are struggling for supplies, for safety. They're constantly on the run, under the gun, and they end up getting jumped by the Imperials. You find out there's an Imperial spy amongst the Alliance. Leia's put in charge of this Black Ops team. Um, and in that story, Han has pretty much committed to the Rebellion completely. He's still sort of roguish, but he doesn't care about paying off Jabba anymore. Basically says, Jabba can't touch me now. Uh, he says Jabba's got his own problems. Then uh, Vader is in, I mean, that comes back to bite him in the butt a couple of issues later, but still. And then Vader himself is in trouble with the Emperor, and it appears Vader actually knows someone named Skywalker was responsible for destroying the Death Star. So some reoccurring themes you see amongst you know those, those stories is the search for a new base for to replace Yavin 4. Han, is, his allegiance is different throughout the various versions. You do see an interesting thing mentioned, I mentioned the last one, where Vader knows Skywalker was involved in the destruction of the Death Star. Wasn't, Rob, you're going to have to help me because you're the Marvel expert here. Wasn't there a long thread where Vader was trying to find out who blew up the Death Star in Marvel? I think so. i got to go back and read those, but yeah, I believe so. So that's pretty contradictory. And then, I, you know, we don't know here if Vader knows that Skywalker is... He, know, he knows Luke's essence. He knows Luke's Force sense in, in the brand new one, I'm sorry, from Marvel, where he goes, the one who destroyed the Death Star is here. And now he's meeting him face-to-face. It'll be interesting to find out if he finds out his name is Skywalker and where that goes with it. But so it's, it's each one stands on its own. You can't really retcon them together all that well. So, again, fourth time relaunching this continuity. How many times are we going to read this story? Um, now, comparing all four, this one's probably the strongest. And I'm not saying that because it's new and shiny, but because you di- all, all the stuff we co- sort of joked about in the beginning about the tropes, mm-hmm. it actually makes it better for that. It does feel more Star Wars. You do have all the characters together. It is a very classic adventure of our Star Warriors going to, you know, on a mission to do something. So I can poke holes in a lot of it, but I think it might be the strongest one of all the, all the first stories. Huh? Cool. That's a that's a good final assessment. Rob, did you have anything to add to that? No, I, I agree with that. I said it, it is. I, I agree with Shag in that it is a probably the most sort of uh, over the over the plate Star Wars adventure. I will say that Star Wars number seven, the one with Han and Chewie, was is still one of my top five all time favorite comic books. <laughs> Because I was so excited that this was new Star Wars because I didn't know about pizzazz or whatever. I was like, I had no I had no sort of knowledge of that at the time. So that Star Wars number seven was literally the first Star Wars I'd seen outside the movie. And I remember to this day when I got it, where I was. I remember my parents buying it for me. I remember walking the mall with it, staring, bumping into people because I was so busy staring at this comic. It is that was one of the most exciting comic book moments of my life was Star Wars number seven. So uh, that will always be my favorite, even though sort of creatively, clearly this book is much more of a Star Wars thing. I, I can relate. Star Wars 13, number 13 was mine. <laughs> with that yeah. John Byrne cover about Let the Wookiee Win. Yeah. It was, the whole concept of a new Star Wars adventure blew my mind. Yep, 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 yep. 
And I have no reference for this because, Rob, as I told Shag last time, at our time of recording this, or as I told Shag in the future, I have never read a single issue of the original Marvel Star Wars run. <laughs> yeah, gas. Um, Notice you say that for the end of the show. You want you to hang up on it. Exactly. Seriously, man. Was, I regret doing this show now. I, I know. I had to like wrestle. I had to wrestle Shag to keep him on the on the line through the power of the interwebs. Um, wow. No, I the first comics I read were in 1988. By then, Star Wars had kind of lapsed, and by the time I started becoming a real hardcore collector of comics, it was in the early and mid 90s. Um, and by that point, when Dark Horse got the when Dark Horse got the license, then I was like, I was really excited. I had that feeling that you had. Sure. Like, cool. Yeah. The new Star Wars stuff. Yep. But Dark Horse and Lucasfilm also went out of their way to sort of ignore and almost poo-poo all of the old Marvel continuity and say that's not real. That was, they dismissed that. And I wanted to be on the cutting edge. I wanted to be like in the new, like cool hip Star Wars crowd. So I, I never had, <laughs> yeah, say, say that sentence in any other context. So yeah, I, I wanted nothing to do with the Marvel, Marvel Star Wars. And then I, there was just always something that was keeping me from doing it. When they announced, when Marvel said they were going to do the big omnibus editions, I thought, okay, maybe it's a lot of money, but maybe I'll spring for that. But now that I know that the the Dark Horse omnibus editions were collected and released on Comixology, I'm going to bite. I'm going to collect them all through that, and I'll probably spend a lot of episodes of this podcast going through that original Marvel run. But I'm just I'm waiting for the right time to do it. It was a fun book. It was my favorite Marvel series for many years. We would be honored if you would join us. So can we temp our crap or what? Jeez. I, I was, if you had given me half a second more, I would have said that. Rob Kelly. Ryan, where... welcome to my life. <laughs> Rob, <laughs> Rob, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, AquamanShrine.net, where people there complaining about what I write over there. And then there's other stuff that you can just, don't worry about. Just go to AquamanShrine.net. That'll be enough. Okay. Oh, come on. No, no, I got more than enough stuff. You, everybody knows what it is. It's fine. Go, go to AquamanTry.net. That's fine. All right, I'll mention it in my outro. Um, Shag, where can people find you in real life? Like if they wanted to knock on your door and spend some time with you. Um, I hang out in convenience stores in the weekend in the parking lots mostly. Uh, oh, that's it, you. It, it varies from community store to community store. But um, you can find me at firestormfan.com, which is dedicated to the nuclear man firestorm. The, the nuclear man? Yeah, that's what he's called. Firestorm. <laughs> Had to think about that. A uh, little discombobulated. The, just to pull back the veil, we're recording on a Tuesday night shortly after watching The Flash, and there was, like, tons of firestorm crap in it, so my brain's exploding at the moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can find me there. You can find me on the Fire and Water podcast. That is a podcast dedicated to Aquaman and Firestorm. I record that completely by my myself um there's no one else on that show with me and it's all the better for it uh then you can find me over at the ultraverse network which is a podcast dedicated to the 1990s uh short-lived imprint ultraverse from malibu comics you can find me also on who true freaks which is a podcast dedicated to doctor who over on the two true freaks network and a few other places that i am forgetting and i'm going to be horribly sorry and have to write apology letters to somebody later and that's about it well i'm glad you didn't mention the legion podcast oh i'm on the oh i'm a member of the legion of super bloggers that's right i'm i'm, I'm their quiet social media guy um <laughs> I don't really write a lot of posts for the site, but I help them get the word out there. Basically, they force me to do it because I force them to start create a website. That's good on you. It's okay. Rob's fault, really. I did it to put a spur in his side. 
<laughs> well, thank you very much again for being a part of this. Uh, I enjoyed hearing your comments. I'm sure my listener will also. Um... <laughs> Hope you liked it, Frank. <laughs> oh, I don't think he knows about this. <laughs> and don't tell him, because I, I, I don't want to read his comments. <laughs> they sting, just like this other guy named Count Drunkula who writes us nasty comments every week. That's the only way I know how to show love. <laughs> Since Rob was too modest, or more likely too tired, to mention his other projects, I'll go ahead and do so on his behalf. Rob is the editor of the book Hey Kids Comics, True Life Tales from the Spinner Rack, which is available in both print and digital editions. He's also the writer for the award-winning webcomic Ace Kilroy. Shag, on the other hand, has no modesty, and availed himself of the opportunity to plug his numerous blogs and podcasts. What he didn't mention, but what you may have picked up on, is that Shag and I had a separate chat a few days before recording this episode, where we covered a number of other topics, and I'm sure that chat will find its way into future episodes down the line. If you liked listening to Rob and Shag but felt this episode could have done with a little less me, well, I understand. Sorry, I had to edit out another segment of me crying again. But I do highly recommend you check out the Fire and Water podcast, if you're not already listening. The show is a blast. Rob and Shag are great, and I want to thank them one more time for appearing on this episode. Now, if you enjoyed this episode for other reasons, such as you'd like me to review additional Star Wars comics in the future, please let me know. Chances are I'm going to do it anyway, but I'd love to hear from you. As always, you can leave me feedback by posting a comment on the show's blog page at deadbothandspies.blogspot.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash deadbothandspies. You can also leave a review of the show on iTunes. Any comments left on the blog or Facebook page or iTunes may be read aloud by me in an upcoming episode, so let me know if you don't want your name or message read on the air. You can also find me on Twitter using the handle at ryandaily01 or the username countdrunkula. Dead Bath and Spies is not affiliated with Lucasfilm or Walt Disney Company, and the views expressed on the show are solely the opinion of the speaker. All music and audio clips are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use, and I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening, and until next time, may the Force make mine marvel. Honestly, have you written an iTunes review? I haven't even looked at the iTunes page. Yes, I have. Okay, I will. I will go check it out because I'm very flattered for that. I I don't know if it's like it showed up yet or something, but I know I wrote one. Okay, awesome. Thank you. The one that signed Shag and it says this sucks. That was him. <laughs> That's good. That's good.